How many of you were here last week when Justin Raymer brought, brought a very powerful message? Was that powerful or what? So last week, if you were here, uh, Justin Raymer with our ministry partner for the nations, Justin Raymer and his family, they were missionaries in Tanzania for a few years, uh, but he spoke on the first half of Nehemiah 5 and preached an amazing sermon. Uh, uh, and, and that text he was preaching on was where uh, Nehemiah kind of fights against the injustice that was happening inside uh, Jerusalem, where wealthy nobles and officials were exploiting uh, the poor. And the poor in Jerusalem were having to mortgage their fields or even in, in worst case scenarios, uh, kind of uh, as collateral, send their kids to be bond servants out of their house um, to pay off the, the, the debt that they were under. So Nehemiah, what we saw, um, it would have been mission failure if he came just to rebuild the physical uh, brokenness of the city. No, he knew that he was commissioned by God to restore the spiritual brokenness as well, that the city would still be defenseless no matter how high and big those walls were if there was still injustice happening inside those walls. So uh, today, our text today, Nehemiah 5, is kind of a continuation of that theme. Uh, and what we see, our text is very unique. Uh, we've kind of shifted in our text today out of chronological order. And our text today is a summary statement of Nehemiah's 12-year reign as governor. And what he's doing in our text today is he's showing that his kind of pursuit of justice and, and righteousness and, and equity amongst the people of God wasn't just like a one-time event that happened in Nehemiah chapter 5. No, what, what he's showing us today is that this idea of servant leadership and righteousness and leading God's people under the fear of God is something that permeated every year and every day of his leadership and his leadership decisions. And so what we'll see in our text today is that for 12 years as governor, Nehemiah chose to willingly and consistently lay aside certain rights and privileges and perks of his position as governor of Judah so that those under his leadership could thrive. And so the question we're going to ask of the text, and then we're going to pray, read the text, pray and dive in, but the question we're going to ask to kind of frame out our time is, why in the world would Nehemiah do this? Right, put yourself in the shoes, it's kind of a hard gig, he's got to rebuild a city from the ground up, fight against injustice and um, why not take some of the perks that come with the, the position, Nehemiah, right? Like, why not do that? Why did he do that? And if we put ourselves in his shoes, it's easy for us to have kind of a misapplication of the text. And we can focus uh, the application of our text to just be like Nehemiah, right? Like, focus on our hands rather than our minds and our hearts and just be like Nehemiah. Instead, what I felt called to do was to remind us, I want to get after our minds and our hearts today and remind us of three things, three things we're called to remember today from this text that will change our attitudes and our actions. One, the first point, if you're taking notes, first point of my talk is this, is that we have to remember that everything that's been given to us by God hasn't necessarily been given to us, it's been entrusted to us. There's a world of difference between those two things. Secondly, everything that has been given to you by God, the second point, isn't intended just for you. Isn't intended just for you. And thirdly, what we have to realize is that everything that's been given to us by God has come through the nail-scarred hands of our Savior. Through the nail-scarred hands of our Savior. So let me read this text, and we'll pray and dive in. Verses will be on the screen. Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. 
but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, verse 19, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you in gratitude of who you are and all that you've done to bring us home, God. We come calling our hearts to remembrance where we're weary and we're heavy laden and we're burdened. That Jesus, you've gone to prepare a better home for us, a place with no more tears, no more death, no more cancer, no more division, no more hostility. That day's coming and when we woke up today, we were one day closer to that table, that feast you have waiting for us, Jesus, that you've prepared through your sacrifice to the giving of your life for us. You made a way when there was no way. You, Jesus, took it upon yourself to remove every obstacle that could keep us from you. So we come before you grateful. Lord, we, we come before you, posturing our hearts, ready to receive your word. We thank you for the gift of your word, Lord Jesus. And we say, come Holy Spirit, do you have your way with our minds and our hearts and our hands today through your word? Lord, we, we don't want to just obey. We want to delightfully obey. We want to gladly follow you, Jesus, because there's no one better else to follow. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us, your people, and have your way with your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would be magnified in our hearts. You would increase, Lord Jesus. And I pray that I would decrease. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, a quick recap, a recap of our text. If we were to ask, what exactly did Nehemiah do? What did he, if, he, if he's saying, hey, I was a servant leader all 12 years, and I fought for equity and justice inside the walls of, of Jerusalem, well, what did that look like? Well, Nehemiah points to four things. The first thing he points to in verse, in verse 15 is this. He says, neither he nor the 150 other officials that were under, governing officials that were under his leadership, uh, partook of the food allowance. Those 150 men all refer to Nehemiah's entourage from here on out. So his food allowance, what, what's a food allowance? Well, in the Persian Empire, governors obviously would have to collect Persian ta- like the king's tax from the people. Uh, that would go to the central treasury, okay? But what was unique kind of about Persian rule over provinces is governors had the right to not only extract the king's tax from the people that they were ruling over, but also a personal tax, a, a, a per diem, if you will, not just for them, but everyone that they had to feed who was part of their staff, their chief of staff, their, their entourage, if you will. So anyone here, a government employee? I'm going to raise your hand, right? What happens when you travel? You're, obviously, you're getting paid a, a salary and retirement and certain bennies, but you get, you get a little icing on the cake when you travel. What's it called? Per diem. Yeah, you all know. Per diem. <laughs> So back in the day, I had a gig outside of ministry where I, I would travel uh, uh, all over the U.S. and I would get a per diem and your boy was just fresh out of college. And so my man would go to the grocery store and I would bank that per diem. It was like, depending on where you went, it'd be like between like 70 to, to whatever, 80, 90 bucks a day. Tuna fish and rich crackers, baby. And you bank that. You had like 400 bucks to you. Anyways, it's awesome. So 
So for governors and their staff, as they're like basically dependent, on, dependent upon the level, like how do you determine the per diem for governors over a region? Well, you want to know how you determine it? It's determined by the level of the greed and gluttony of the governor and the ruling officials. And so you could crush people with this per diem. You could literally, through double taxing them, yes, the king's tax that goes into the central treasury, and also our tax. Hey, I got a, a taste for some fine wine and fine coffee. I got a taste for, you know, some, some fillets and, and everything that, you know, uh, uh, shines and glistens. I, uh, how about we, we work into the daily per diem, a fresh Gucci three-piece suit, and I don't want to roll to and from, you know, my, my office in a Toyota Corolla when I can be rolling in an Escalade you know, with new shoes on the wheels and all that stuff, okay? So depending on the greed and gluttony of the governor or their entourage, um, people could be crushed, crushed because of the excess of their rulers. And Nehemiah chose to say, we ain't taking no per diem. We're not going to do that. And neither is anyone else. Nehemiah didn't have to do this. He chose to do this. The second thing Nehemiah points to in verse 16 is he says, Nehemiah and his entire entourage, 150 officials, they worked on the wall as well. They didn't have to, they chose to. Nehemiah went undercover boss on them, all right? So you have a bunch of political elites that are side by side, sweat, I mean, imagine, okay, 2022, imagine our politicians today, okay, just, just, just imagine like the miracle that this is. Calluses on their hand, mixing concrete, you know, timber on their shoulder, sawing timber and carrying it over there, and I couldn't help but think like for the, for the, the, for the craftsmen that are there that know a trade and the, the political official, you know, trying to be like, hey, we're in this together. Like, hey, you're doing more harm than good. Like, can you not, like, how about you just, you just mix concrete, we'll do this. That wall over there is like completely lopsided. Anyways, <laughs> Nehemiah didn't have to do this. He wanted to do this. He chose to do this. And, and, and his entourage got, had calluses on their hands and sweat on their brow. Third thing Nehemiah points him to in verse 16 is neither Nehemiah nor his entourage for 12 years, they didn't buy a square inch of land of investment properties while they're imagine the injustice of this so they double tax what if what if they double tax God's people because they're they're greedy and they're gluttonous and, and they never have a, a, a framework for when to cut off the excess so that other, other people can thrive so they, they 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 take all the money they can from people who are already uh, heavy laden and, and poor and in debt and then with the money that they took from them they buy up all the land in and around Jerusalem all the investments so that those people will stay in poverty because how do you get how do you build generational wealth well through buying and owning real estate and having that appreciate over value. And so imagine the injustice, double taxing them and buying up all the investment properties for 12 years. Well, Nehemiah could say, well, I'm just looking out for me and my family, just building generational wealth, buys up all the land. He doesn't do that. And Nehemiah said, and neither will 150 of my officials. He didn't have to do that. He chose it. And the last thing we see in verses 17 through 18, the last thing Nehemiah points us to is he had to feed these dudes, 150 guys. He had to feed them. On a daily basis. And not only that, given his position, his status, we have some, you know, uh, uh, FSOs and FAOs and uh, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of other uh, acronyms in my head. Okay, so uh, foreign area officers. And you know, you know that, you know, what, what kind of comes with the ambassadorial responsibilities, right? Like, so visiting officials would come from nations and it was Nehemiah's responsibility to wine and dine them right? And talk business and talk shop over the, the, all the things, right? Over some fine wine and some, 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 some cooked lamb and all that stuff. And what Nehemiah explicitly says us is that he, he explains verse 17 through 18. He says, here's what we daily ate. Here's what we ate. Here's the wine we ate. And guess who paid for it? Nehemiah says, I paid for it out of my own pocket. 
Now, I did the math on this, and uh, Nick Bumgarner is our fearless treasurer. Nick, let me know if my math is wrong here. I went to seminary, and he got his engineering degree. So anyways, um, let's put this in, in modern-day example. Say, say the per diem they set for the 150 officials was $90 per day. $90 per day for 150 officials. That comes out to roughly $15,000 a day. A year, you multiply that by 365 every day, 90 bucks a day for 150 people, that comes out to roughly $5 million a year. Multiply that by 12, what do you get? 60, 12 years, $60 million. $60 million that didn't come to Nehemiah. $60 million that stayed with the people of Jerusalem. Like that's a lot of money. That's not including $60 million plus the appreciation of all the real estate we purchased, $60 million plus all the compound interest on those investments, right? $60 million where Nehemiah said, you know what? This is gonna stay, it's a modern day, I'm not ripping this from a commentary, I could, my math could be off, but I'm saying if it was a modern day example, it was $5 million out of, out of the annual budget that Nehemiah was saying, we're not gonna touch that. That's gonna go to the people, it's gonna stay with the people. Nehemiah, again, didn't have to do this, but he, laid, he had, ev Nehemiah, with all those four things I, I listed, he had every right to claim every one of those things. Could have bought a, a little bit of real estate. Sure, he could have taken the per diem. He could have had, uh, you know, King Artaxerxes, the government pay, all of this stuff. He chose. He chose to sacrifice. He chose to take the hit. Why? Why did he do this? And he, we don't have to guess. He tells us in verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. Why, Nehemiah, tell us if we would just know why you did this? Because of the fear of God. That's why. Because of the fear of the Lord. Which leads us to our first point. Everything we have to remember today, everything that's been given to us by God, our gracious, kind, compassionate God, hasn't just been given. It's been entrusted to us. If we were to ask, what is the fear of the Lord? Real quick, I would tell you, go listen to last week's sermon because Justin Raymer preached an entire sermon on this topic and did a phenomenal job on teaching us what the fear of the Lord is. What I will add to today to that discussion is this. You want to know what fear of the Lord is? It's simply this, I believe, adding to what Justin was talking about last week. It's simply understanding in our relationship with God, it's simply understanding who exactly is Lord and who exactly is servant. We get those things figured out, we'll walk in the uh, healthy fear of the Lord. Not fear of the Lord, if I make one mistake, a lightning bolt's gonna come from heaven and incinerate me. No, fear of the Lord of this. The role of a servant is to steward the resources their master has entrusted to them for the advancement, the accomplishment of their master's expressed will and desires. Let me repeat that. The role of a, of, of a servant and a steward is to steward the resource their master hasn't just given them, but entrusted to them for the advancement of their master's revealed will and revealed desires. And often, subconsciously, and I'm preaching to myself up here, we reverse these roles and we do something crazy. We reverse these roles with our relationship with God and we think we're Lord and God exists to serve us. You say, oh, that's, oh Nick, I never struggled with that. Okay, well, let's audit our praying life. Here we go. Great book on the table out there, by the way. Uh, that's why, so I don't need, the reason we have that book table out there is so I have to stop name dropping books. And those are all the books I'd recommend you read, okay? <laughs> Audit your praying life and how often, and listen, there's a time, right? Like we, we see this in scripture in the Psalms. There's a time to come just honest and messy, right? But how often is this the case where our, our, our prayer life is often calling God into our holy presence, 
for a quarterly review on how he's doing, calling him to give an account on how he's failed to meet our demands. Hey, Lord, come here. Come here real quick, Lord. So I've got your stat sheet here this last quarter, and your performance is pretty low. Uh, I, I've, I've clearly laid out my demands. I shall never suffer. I shall have wealth. I, everyone should love me and be happy with me. And uh, like, like, what's going on with this whole like, uh, like 2020 plus thing? What's going on with that, right? Like how often in our praying life is it, is, have we reversed the roles? Not understanding when Jesus teaches us how to pray. Yes, we have a father and we're his kids. And he loves us, but the first thing we pray is, Father, you, your name be magnified. Your will be done. Your kingdom, this has nothing to do with me. I have to give an account to you at the end of my life, not you give an account to me. That's how this works. We reverse the role. So in contrast to that line of thinking where we are Lord over God and God exists to serve us and accomplish our wills and wishes and advance our kingdom, Nehemiah walked in fear of the Lord. Nehemiah walked in fear of the Lord. What he understood was this. Nehemiah understood that he was going to give an account to God, not God to him. That's what walking in the fear of the Lord is. And the implication was this. Nehemiah knew this. He knew that his role as governor of Judah and everything that miraculously took place to bring him there wasn't something that was given to him by God. It was something that was entrusted to him by God. And there's a world of difference between that. So let me, let me illustrate that. So um, God has given, and I'm, I'm going to explain the, everything that you guys are thinking about. Well, doesn't God give good gifts to his kids? Yes, he does. But listen, if Nehemiah steps into this role as governor with all the perks of the role, $60 million of wealth at the end of his career that he could bank, okay? If Nehemiah chose to have the given-to-me thinking, the given-to-me mindset. He could say, man, God is so kind. He has elevated me to this status. God has blessed me with health. God has blessed me with wealth. This is amazing. Look at how much money I have legal right to claim from the people. This is amazing. God, oh, I'm so blessed. Thank you, God. You gave this to me. And you might not have that thinking. Like that's the, that's the whole bottom line why health and wealth gospel is utter nonsense. Because God doesn't just, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. And he's entrusted to me. He, he didn't have God's given this to me. He's God's entrusted this to me thinking. Which is, yes, thank you, God, for this position, this role. To rebuild the physical and spiritual brokenness of Jerusalem. But Lord, would you give me wisdom to use what you've graciously given to me for your purposes, for your glory, for your kingdom agenda, for the flourishing of others. God, thank you for this role, this response. It's a completely different perspective, right? Help me, Lord, do your will with what you've given me is different than saying, Lord, give me stuff so I can do whatever I want with it. It's a completely different mindset. And we see Nehemiah's heart here in verse 19. How does our text end today? In verse 19, Nehemiah says this. At first glance, it sounds like he's completely bragging and boasting, right? Uh, verse 19, he says this. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. That's not his heart. It's like, remember, like all my, my, my stat sheet. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's, there's hum I, I believe there's humility here. Saying, Lord, I know I didn't do it perfectly. I know I messed up along the way. But this is Nehemiah giving, this is, this is, you want to know what verse 19 prayer is? This is a servant giving account to his Lord and asking for mercy. He's saying, Lord, would you see the good? Would you see my heart? You know, my, 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 <laughs> you know, my stats and, and all that stuff, but could you see the sincerity of my heart for the past 12 years? Would you look upon me with favor that I sought to walk in fear of you and, 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 and you've entrusted to me, 
this, this wealth, these possessions, and this position. But Lord, see, I didn't use it to just advance me and my name and my kingdom. I used it to cause life to flourish. And I took a hit and my staff took a hit to make that happen. So all that to say what I'm getting at before we move to our second point is that everything you are and all you possess has been entrusted to you by God to be used to bring glory to his name. And that's the beautiful thing about following Jesus is he says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. And he who loses his life will save it. Is when we understand that it's no longer about us and it's all about him, that's where true life is found. That we were created to worship God. We were created to get over ourselves and our kingdoms. And once we lay that down, we actually find life, which is truly life. And we have a much better Lord over our lives. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What are the implications of that, Paul? Speaking to the Corinthian believers in the context of sexual immorality. So glorify God in your body. I love what he says in, in, in this text. He says, you are not your own. What, what he's saying, another way to say that is, even you doesn't belong to you. Even you doesn't belong to you. Your mind doesn't belong to you. Your heart doesn't belong to you. Your hands don't. What he's saying is that you've actually been purchased out of, you used to belong to the devil. Ephesians 2, you were children of wrath, following like, with the sons of disobedience. And Colossians 1 and 2, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness by the sacrifice Christ made into the kingdom of God, and every kingdom has a king. And we've been rescued to have a much more gracious, loving king that we bow down to in worship. And so even you doesn't belong to you, and therefore even your possessions don't belong to you. And whoever, let me illustrate this, whoever holds the title or ownership over something determines its purpose, right? Let me illustrate this. So I I have a couple Toyota SUVs, all right? Got a Toyota Highlander, Toyota RAV4. That wasn't even a choice. I just stumbled into that, all right? I'm not like a car guy, Toyota guy, okay? So I have a Toyota Highlander. Now, if somebody, if one of you were to waltz into my house and take my keys to my Highlander, like you, like you, you own the thing, and I'm going, hey, where are, you, where are you going with my keys? Oh, I'm going to take your Highlander. Okay, well, why? That's mine. You can't take that. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to take it to the demolition derby. I, I, I got a really cool like, uh, team with me, and I'm just going to, I'm going to rip this thing to shreds. I'm saying, uh, no, you're not going to do that <laughs> because let me go to my safe downstairs and pull out you know, like, like the, 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 the evidence that I own you so you don't get to call the shots of what you do with your life. You don't get to take that thing to a demolition derby. I actually own you, and therefore I determine your purpose. And that's what it means in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, is even you doesn't belong to you. Christ, the evidence of his, 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 his ownership over you is what we're going to do after this service is celebrate communion. It's his broken body and his shed blood, right? So by God's grace, he's redeemed us to a far greater purpose than bringing destruction into our lives. But now he's redeemed us to be agents of redemption and restoration around us. So then it begs the question, well, how do we best steward what God's entrusted to us? Nick, I get it. I get it. Okay. You've been beating this point home, you know, uh, uh, that it's, it's not just been given, but God's entrusted to it. We're good stewards. We want to be good stewards. And well, how do we then steward what God has given us for the glory of his name? How do we steward it, Nick? Thank you for asking that question. Second point is this. Everything that has been given to us by God is not intended just for us. We have to get that mindset. Everything that God has given us isn't just meant for us. We're to ask, how do we best steward what God has given us? I think the scriptures are clear. Really simply, you want to know how you steward what God's given you is you give it away to other people in need. 
That's how you steward it. Or you cause it to increase as much as you can so that you can give more away and not keep it all to yourself. So therefore, if God elevates your status and God elevates your wealth and, and promotes you in a worldly sense, he does that so you can actually serve others more and you can give away more. Ephesians 4, 28, I love this, this verse. Illustrates this point. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Often all of us would have just stopped there. If we ever see someone who's been shoplifting and he's a new believer, it's just say, hey, just stop doing that. Stop cutting it out. Here, let's help you. I'm going to help you work out a resume. I have some context. I'm going to get you a good job. And now this is what followers of Jesus do. They, have, they earn a living. They do honest, hard work. Amen. Hallelujah. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. You see the verse on the screen. He says, why should a thief stop stealing? Just because it's wrong? No, because we are not. We talk, we talk about this at length in the Sermon on the Mount. We are no longer called to stop doing bad things. We're now agents of restoration to not just stop pulling hell up into the world, we're actually commissioned by God to start pulling heaven down. So he says, thief, stop being an agent of destruction. Now be an agent of redemption. Work hard and cause things to grow. Why? Why? Why, Paul? So that he might have something to share with anyone in need. That's how you steward what God's given you. He's entrusted. He's given you health so that you can have a job. He's given you favor where you're at. Money's coming in on a daily basis. Your needs, your daily bread is being met by God and then some. And what are we doing with the then some? That's what stewardship is all about. You might say, okay, um, hopefully it's the Holy Spirit, not me, poking, pressing on some idols here. On the then some. Daily needs met and then the then some. But you might say, come on, Nick. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so you're saying, you're saying sell my house, sell my car, liquidate all my assets, give it and be homeless, have my family not be able to feed, and we just starve? Is that, is that what you're saying? Is that how we steward it? Like, give it away, Nick? Is that, is that what you're saying? Just give it all? I'm not suggesting that at all. Well, uh, uh, if the Lord tells you to do that and go be a missionary, you better go do that, okay? But here's what we see in Scripture. What Scripture says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than a non-believer. And then what we saw going through the Sermon on the Mount earlier this year in the Lord's Prayer, what does God pray? God, give us this day our daily bread. That God, you're our provider, how much more, Matthew 6, will the Father give your needs to you? Because he's a good father. He loves to give good gifts to his kids, right? So we, like the Lord will give us what we need to survive and thrive. And in our text, we see that Nehemiah and his entourage didn't choose to starve. They, they willingly chose to sacrifice for the good of others. See, see with the mindset of saying, oh, you tell me to starve? That's, not, that's a mindset on ourselves and our needs and our wants. The, the secret sauce to Nehemiah's mindset was this, was his compassion for others, the needs of others. Why did Nehemiah do this? Compassion. Two times in our text, Nehemiah, two times, twice in our text, Nehemiah says, I saw there were heavy burdens placed on people. I mean, he was, he was I mean, we can just gloss over the fact that, that sons and daughters were being sold into slavery as collateral to, to, to wealthy Jews in, in and outside of Jerusalem as collateral to pay off their loans. Could you imagine as a parent how horrific that would be? How agonizing that would be. You're getting doubly taxed. You're losing your kids. And you have no framework for how you're going to get yourself. And you're just like, I'm going to be in jail. And I just lost my kids. Everything is, and Nehemiah is saying, that compassion for the burden that was placed on other people said, you know what? I think I can give a little bit more here. I think I can cap this thing. I think I can cap my wealth. I think I can cap my taste buds. I think I can cap the excess so that other people can have more. 
And the only way those burdens were lifted off the people is if Nehemiah sacrificed those perks. He drew a line in the sand and said, this is enough for me. And then he took a 12-year, $60 million hit out of his own wallet, essentially, so that that $60 million could stay with the poor and that they could begin to rebuild their lives. Life and flourishing came to the citizens of Jerusalem because in a way, death came to Nehemiah and his staff. And that's the anthem that we have as followers of Jesus, is Christ Jesus died so that I might live, now let me die so that other people might live. That, that encapsulates everything that we are called to do as followers of Jesus. The mindset that Nehemiah had was surely with the position and the access to this wealth that God has given me, surely God did not intend all of this just for me. It's a great thing to do with, with all the resources God has given you is look at it and say, surely God did not intend all of this just for me. When we have that mindset, the world begins to change. There's a great book on the, the table there by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. If you know Rosaria Butterfield's story, um, she was in the LGBTQ community. She was a professor, I believe, at Brown University. She wrote a scathing article against Christians and the church uh, and in a local newspaper, and a Presbyterian pastor wrote her in response to that newspaper article and said, hey, I really appreciate you know, your, your, the, the thoughts that you shared in your article. My family would love to have you over for dinner. would love to have you over for dinner. And all of a sudden, she said yes, and she went, and then she went again, and again, and again. And, and then she writes in her biography about how there came a day where she, she left the, the bed of her partner and went to church and gave her life to Jesus after I think it was either months or years of this hospitality shown by just uh, a normal Presbyterian pastor and his family who did this. This pastor is looking at his house. He's saying, surely God didn't intend this big house just for me. Surely God didn't intend just my family to be at this, this dining room table. Surely God didn't intend all these chairs in the house just to have me and my family sitting here. Surely all the food in my fridge isn't just here for me. Surely the salvation that Jesus has given me isn't just for me. Who can I invite in? Who can I bring in? And so, so then something beautiful happens when we begin to have this is it's not really that complicated. All of a sudden, we just begin to flip the purpose of our possessions. Instead of it serving our agenda, we get to flip the purpose of our, agenda, of our possessions to serve his agenda. So what in your life, if you were to audit right now, what in your life is God calling you to begin to leverage for the kingdom of God and your king's purposes and not your own purposes? Your car, Right? Anyone who needs a ride, your house, you have a, an extra room that people can sleep in, your dining room table, food on your table. Recently, someone, dude, I am like, if, if there's like on the spectrum of like normal human being, hoarder and anti-hoarder, I am full-blown anti-hoarder, okay? And so somebody recently bought my family a moon bounce and uh, I got three kids. And like, that's like any other normal parent would be like, yes, this is awesome. My kids get to play my moon bounce. In my heart, I gotta be honest, church, I just go to, I got another toy and it's gonna take up space in my house wow you know just like i'm like turned to a grumpy dad okay anyways can i get an amen from one of you so i don't feel like i'm alone up here okay thank you geez but then i had this thought i was like oh man wait maybe that wasn't given to me maybe that moon bounce was entrusted to me maybe i could blow that bad boy up near halloween in my front yard and go door to door and have some kind of crazy cookout with our community group uh and invite all the neighbors over Maybe the Lord's entrusted to me something as silly as a moon bounce, and maybe that moon bounce can be leveraged for the kingdom of God in this divisive, I mean, my neighborhood, people got political signs everywhere. It's crazy. And what it'd be like to say, hey, let's be an agent of reconciliation in our neighborhood, just opening up our doors to strangers, neighbors who've lived across from each other, but have never talked to each other once a day in their life. 
right? As simple as leveraging a moon bounce, right? I haven't done it yet, but I'm going I'm, 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 I'm going there. But I'm saying, I'm just saying that to give you an example of how we can flip things for the kingdom of God and how much more joy there is to use what God has given you to be a blessing to others and an agent of restoration where he's called you. And then, so that was first application, what can you begin to flip the purpose of for the kingdom of God? Give back to God what he's given to you. And then secondly, pray this prayer daily for this week. Try it for seven days and see what happens to your heart and see what the Lord does. Lord, give me opportunities to die today. Give me opportunities to gladly lay aside some rights, some privileges, some perks so that others can thrive and be encouraged and strengthened. Give me opportunities to die so that life can come to other people. Pray that prayer and begin to see what the Lord does to your heart. Pray that prayer and see what the Lord begins to do in your house and your marriage and your family. Pray that prayer and see what happens where in Acts 20, the apostle Paul quoting Jesus says, uh, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, so transitioning here. You might be saying, Nick, this all sounds great. Like God is Lord, I'm servant, and we just bend our knee and submit to his will. But there's one small problem that I have is I rarely want to yield to God's will for my life, right? Just one tiny small problem. My life feels like an all-out war between doing God's will and doing my will. Anyone there? Yeah, it's like flesh and spirit, right? Scriptures talk about it. Galatians 5, uh, uh, Romans 6 through 8, you know, this battle of wills. It's like, it's like there's two people in the front seat and your, your life is a road trip and, and the steering wheel's in the center console and you and God are recklessly fighting over the direction you're going, right? You're ending up in ditches and then you're swerving out of ditches and you, Jesus takes the wheel, but then you take the wheel back from Jesus, you know, and <laughs> you can resonate with that, amen? Even when we do obey, sometimes it just feels like simply dutiful obedience. How do we shift to delightful submission to our king? How do we shift from dutiful, begrudging, stiff-necked service to delightful yieldedness to our Lord and Savior? And the answer is this. I'm reading a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. This quote is in a little bit of old English, so sorry, but this is what he has to say about contentment. I stumbled upon this this week, and I I really want to share it because it really uh, 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 ministered to me powerfully. You all say that you should submit to God's will. A Christian has got beyond this. Okay, Jeremiah. Oh, well, what'd you say now? Wait, what'd you just say? I thought, I thought that was what it meant to be a Christian. Just submit to God's will. He says, no, a Christian has got beyond this. He can make God's will his own the same. It is said of believers that they are joined to the Lord and are of one spirit. That means that whatever God's will is, I do not only see good reason to submit to it, but God's will is my will. A gracious heart will say, oh, what God would have, I would have to I will not yield to it, but I would have it too. And a great, I love this line, a gracious heart is contented by the melting of his will and desires and to God's will and desires. A gracious heart is contented by the the melting, the the dissolving of his will and desires into God's will and desires. The answer of how two wills become one is when our will melts into his so that there's no longer division which is two different visions for your life there's one vision there's one will so then the follow-up question is well then how in the world do we do this right like can i get some of that lord can i get some of my will 
disappearing so I can gladly yield to your will, so I can say that your will is also my will. And so, uh, my, anyone here know what perler beads are? Nobody, okay. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know this until I had kids. Okay, so um, there are these tiny beads of various colors, and your kids play with them. And there are these little patterns, like there's like a, a, like if my hand was like a plastic cutout of like a turkey, and there's all these mini spikes all over it, and then you place, and then you make a turkey with all these, like you place all these beads, like a, like a thousand, five hundred beads on this thing over a ten hour, five week period to build one turkey. Okay, and my kids love this stuff. And, and I, man, it's like, I mean, I was trained to be brain surgeons. I come over in the morning, I had my cup of coffee, and you have these little, like, uh, 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 tweezers, you know, to grab the beads, and I'm, like, shaking. I'm like, how in the world do you get these things to land? And the thing, you just sneeze, and the whole thing explodes, and you got to start. Like, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. I'm like, how do you guys enjoy this? This is crazy. And they'll do it for, like, five hours. And then, once it's complete, you have all these different color beads, these different beads, thousands of them. But then you have to bring something external to make them one. And you put wax paper over it and you heat up this iron like 5,000 degrees and you press this iron on all those perler beads and what do you get? You get one beautiful Thanksgiving turkey out of that thing, right? So if we were to ask, well, how did all those various beads become one? How did they melt into one? Well, they, 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 they couldn't look to themselves and look to each other and say, we're going to become one. We're going to do this. And we're like hard plastic and stiff-necked and we're just going to do this. No, no, no. They needed the heat of an external source to come and melt away their hardness. They needed a heat from an external source to come in, to, come in, to loosen up and soften their stiff neck. And, and watch this. The beads didn't get a choice, Right? The bees didn't get a choice when the heat came of melting. Isn't that the case for our lives when, when, when Christ grabbed a hold of our hearts? And we almost like we didn't get a choice. The heat came of his love, the radiance of his glory to an undeserved sinner, and it just melted our will. And said, so who's a God like this? Who's a king like this? I'll gladly serve you. I can feel the warmth of your presence. The psalmist says, uh, 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 Steve quoted it this morning for the call to worship. Those who don't look to themselves and their own wills and, and their own hands and say, God, I got to soften this. I got to do something. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Those who draw near to the Lord are conformed into his likeness. Those who, who don't look at themselves or their own hands to change. Those who look at the nail-scarred hands of Jesus begin to change. And his love, the fury of his white-hot love for them begins to melt their will. To say, uh, you're not a tyrannical uh, a, a servant who's always harassing me and hounding me. You're a gracious king. And the proof of that is this, is my third and last point. Band, you can come on up here. Is everything we have been given has been given to us through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God. This is the cry of the redeemed. Go read Ephesians 1 this week. Maybe pray through it every day. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's a difference between spiritual blessings and physical blessings. 
God's common grace is his provision of food and resources and, uh, and money to the, the saved and the unsaved, the believer and the unbeliever. If you're, if you're here today and a Christian and you have non-Christian neighbors, they have a house. They have a food full of fridge, just like you do. That's God's grace to them. We call that common grace. But there's some things that only Jesus can give to his kids. There's some things that we have received that only those in Christ Jesus receive. I was listening to a song uh, this Thursday. I was just writing emails by this guy, Justin, Jason Upton. And uh, the song was only from you. And uh, the song, the Holy Spirit ministered, me to, ministered to me so powerfully as I heard this song that my, my, Jake was on a phone call next door. And I just started sobbing. And he texted me as he was on. He's like, dude, are you, what the, what's going on, bro? Like, and this line in the song was, only from you, only from you. There's some things, God, that come only from you. We can gain this whole world. But peace, true peace, oh, this, I'm getting off the lyrics here, but true peace, abiding peace, and love, true love, and joy, these things come only from you. These things come only from you. Jesus died to give you himself. God is the gospel. Every spiritual blessing is the gift of God to himself. And it came through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, removing, tearing away through his, his descent from his throne, choosing to lay aside his divine privileges, choosing to, to clothe himself forever in humanity, to chase us down. And then he chose the only man who had no right to death because he was sinless, he chose to lay aside his right to life and freely chose to lay down his life. Why? So that you could live forever in his presence. And every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places could be yours as your inheritance forever. You, you and I were crushed under the debt of sin that separated us from God. We were working our, our, our fingers to the bone to atone for the shame and the condemnation. But someone laid aside their rights and their privileges and they took it upon themselves to pay our debt so that we can go free. It was Christ who did that, laying aside his rights, his divine privileges, and he came, and he came for us. That's how we possess these spiritual blessings of salvation and forgiveness and victory over sin and demonic and, and hope of future glory and present abundant life and God's presence, the fruits of the Spirit in our lives of joy and love and comfort of a spirit and affliction. And the only reason they've come is because Jesus chose out of love for us to sacrifice, to lay down his life for us. The reason grace has been poured out upon us is because wrath was poured out upon him. The only reason forgiveness has come to us is because forsakenness fell upon him. The only reason healing has come to us is because scourging came to him. The only reason every spiritual blessing has come to us is because he became a curse for us. And the only reason life and life eternal and life abundant has come to us, the children of God, is because he died in our place. Let the truth of the gospel melt our hearts, melt our wills to his this morning. We're going to sing, I'd love for us to sing those last two songs of worship and response. Let me pray for us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Prepare our hearts, examine our hearts before we celebrate and commemorate the sacrifice of our Savior. Hmm.
Oh, precious Holy Spirit. Come and melt our hearts with your love, God. Let the heat and the fury of, of your consuming fire of your love melt us, God, in the best sense of the term. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Come, Holy Spirit, minister your love, God. Jesus, you died and you ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what did you do? You poured out your presence. You poured out your spirit upon your people in love so that where we are, you could be also. So would you come and show us your heart posture towards us? Would you wash away shame and condemnation? Would you wash away rejection and loneliness? As we're enveloped today in your love, as we look to your nail-scarred hands, we say, what's a king like this? What's a God like this? Lord, let us gladly lay down everything to the one who's already given everything to us. We freely receive God, but today we, we realize that it wasn't free, it was costly. It cost you something, Jesus. The highest price that could be paid for my salvation had to be paid. The wrath of God poured out for my sins on him. That's the cost. It's not, for, oh, we receive it freely, but there was a cost. It was paid. But not on our dime, on his dime. He took the hit. He went down. He died so that we could have life. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Come, Holy Spirit. Remind us of your goodness and your love and the heights and the lengths and the depths and the, and the width that, you, that you've gone to pursue us. Even when we were running from you and wanted nothing to do with you, you chased us down. And you said, I'm rewriting your story. You're coming home with me. I'm taking the steering wheel. We're going to a new, a new place, a new destination, a new journey. Thank you, Jesus. We could spend all day, we could spend all eternity thanking you for what you've done. So thank you, Jesus. What a kind king you are. What a compassionate king you are, Lord God. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.